If you brought some scriptures tonight, please turn to Psalm 44. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we now ask that you would be with us tonight. May your word be exposed, uh, that is, may it be, may be preached with, with understanding, and may your people have ears to hear. And so we ask that all the words that are spoken tonight be of glory to Christ. We pray that these things be done, that he might be lifted up. Enable us, Lord, to understand your ways when we should. And Father, when we cannot understand your ways, give us grace to trust and obey and to have hearts that are resting in you no matter what the condition. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to always trust you. Help us to always own you as our God, no matter what the conditions, no matter what the circumstance. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to read this psalm in its entirety before we begin, because it needs to be heard all at once. There is a, um, a natural division in these, and usually it's done uh, in the form of singing, where you see the word sila in it, and it's really a kind of a musical instruction. And so many times I don't read that, and uh, the instructions many times has to do with changing the tone, changing the mood, changing the direction of what's being said. And so let's read this. O God, you have heard with our, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my, bow, in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. And we will give thanks to your name forever. And at this place, the psalm changes its tone. And listen carefully. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with and have and not gone out with our inner armies you have made us turn back from the foe and you who hate us have gotten spoil you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations you have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them you have made us the taunt of our neighbors the derision and scorn of those around us you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. <clears throat> All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. 
Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in this in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a, a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Arouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake, for your, for the sake of your steadfast love. Now this, this is a very, I don't know how you would put it, encouraging or almost discouraging. It's 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 it just grabs the heart and mind just reading it. But I want you to understand that there is something very valuable to be taught here. The lesson is this. We can glorify God in our suffering. That can be done. And it can only be done by the God's hand. Now this may not be our preferred way to glorify God, but we must leave that in the hands of the Lord. We must leave that in the hands of the Master. I'm going to read through these verses again, and I'll make my observations, and then we'll have about three applications at the end. <clears throat> let me read once more. Um, well, let me read the first eight verses together. Now, the first eight verses coming together is really kind of a history lesson. It's a lesson of how this man is saying to himself and to all who hear him, because this is going to be sung in a congregation. And he is knowing that God is hearing and God is listening. It's a recounting of all the history that's gone on before. And if you can imagine all the good things that God has done. And, just, and, and, and as we read through this, I want you to envision in your mind Miriam and Moses and Miriam singing that great song of victory. And these things are wonderful to hear. And these are the type of things we need to remember ourselves. So let's go through this. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. When you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. And so here we have a, an account of this, this history. The scriptures teach us that we should teach our children about the things of God. And the people of God in the Old Testament, they were given specific instructions to tell their children the history of their people. How they were in Egypt, how they were slaves, how God with a mighty hand came and brought them out. How they endured through the wilderness and how they went into the promised land and they vanquished the people that were there. They came in and they said, you drove out the nations, but our fathers, our people, you planted them there. You afflicted the peoples that were living there, and yet you set us free. You have made us to live there. This is something that is being stated by this man as a very positive thing. He is really lifting his heart up to God and saying, 
I own my heritage. I own my loved ones. They counted on you and I count on you. I bless your name for all that you have done. And he also identifies himself with them. For not by their own sword did they win the land. He acknowledges the power of God. He acknowledges that though they were valiant soldiers, they were men of valor, they fought, they went up to Jericho, but it was the walls that fell flat by God's hand, but they went in to do battle. They did not shrink, you know, did shriek back or shrink back from the battle. They were engaged, but he is saying, I know this is from God. I know it is by God's hand, not by our sword. Even though they were skilled, even though they were brave, even though they were wonderful warriors, but they knew it wasn't by their sword, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was the face of God, that wonderful presence in the tabernacle, the wonderful presence of God that moved them forward. The great, uh, the receiving of the witnesses. Now, remember how Caleb and Joshua came back and they were the only two. And so that's why they did not go over. But when they were ready, when Joshua was ready, they went in and they said, it doesn't matter if there are giants here, we, they, will, they will run from us. One will dispel 10,000 of them. We love to hear of our forefathers in the faith. This is what we are looking at now. They loved the history that God gave them. They loved to hear how God's own hand moved in their defense. And we do too, don't we? We love to hear how God moved in the past. We know that we have a history. We have a heritage. We have people that are like us. They belong to us. And we are engaged in the same battles they are. They were brave. We want to be brave. They had battles. We want to have battles for God. We want to be engaged the way they were. Now, <clears throat> um, the second part of this, this first section, this is the very first section, section one through eight. There are two parts to this section. The first part talks about the history and how this, uh, this man that, is right, that has written this particular psalm identifies with that. Now, the second part tells us that um, we, you know, that we love knowing how. We love how God has done this. We have learned that God alone is responsible for our, for our deliverance, that we own him as our God, okay? So let's read these verses four through eight, where we are actually saying, you are my God. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Now he's not telling God what to do here. He is actually re-expressing what God has already promised. He is actually owning the promise. Oh, do what you have said. Ordain salvation for Jacob. You are our God. <clears throat> Through you, we push down our foes. They are going to be victorious, but they acknowledge right from the very beginning. It is by God's hand that we push down our enemies. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. It is not by our power, not by our might, not by our cleverness, but he owns that God has done this. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Now these were men of, men of valor. These were warriors. They did severe fighting, but after they won, they never took credit, and they never should have either. 
Now we, ourselves, we have to see our lives like that. This is a good part of the psalm. Now, now, now all of the psalm is good. Don't, don't, uh, don't get me wrong. But this is a section that is, uh, we would say that this is like uh, an uplifting part. This is a part that just gives us courage. But you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. This is something that we would love to have happen all the time. This is something that would encourage us every time. There's nothing like a word of encouragement, nothing like someone giving you a pat on the back, or shall we say, the instant gratification of being um, openly rewarded and have something there forever. And so, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now, this is where we stop with a different type of tone where, where we have this instruction to change. In reading Spurgeon, he puts it this way. A pause comes in fitly right here. It needs to be here. When we read about how to descend from the highest to the lowest key, because the reader, that is the writer of this, is just about at the highest level of, of encouragement, of loving God, and now he's going to descend to the lowest key. And interesting, Spurgeon puts it this way. We no longer hear Miriam's timbrel and her song. But instead, we rather hear Rachel's weeping for her children. And so now, the man that is saying, We have been your people. You have saved us from our enemies. You have cleared them out before us. And now, we have a different section here. And this is in verses 9 through 16. Now, in verses 9 through 16, we're going to be reading where the psalmist actually confesses that he has feelings of being abandoned, abandoned by God. Now, he's going to say these things about three different circumstances. He's going to talk about, we have no military victories. He's going to talk about being sold like, like sheep. And then he's also going to talk about how that um, enemies uh, just have made us a disgrace to the world. Those three different things. And each time when we go into one of these, there are two great woes that he brings in. So let's take a look at the first one, verses 9 and 10. This is no military victories, and there are two woes that we see here. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. When we did our fighting against your enemies, against our enemies, you did not go with us. And verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. So we see there are two things. You have not gone with us, but you've actually been with them. This is a, this is, now you may say, well, why would he have the nerve to say that to God? Well, the thing that is happening here is that he's only stating the truth. But he, now I want you to also see, he is not blaming God. He's not. He is not blaming God. This comes out very, very quickly at the end. This comes out to, you can't just live one of those happy, slappy lives saying everything is really good, everything is really good, and this is what Christians should look like, and they're always bouncing and bubbling. No, sometimes a hymn has to be in a minor key. Sometimes life is like this, and we have to ask ourselves, why is life sometimes very hard, and why is there suffering of God's people? 
but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. Verses 11 and 12, a different type. We are like sheep for the slaughter. That's one way. But also, we are not only sheep for the slaughter, but we have been sold for almost nearly nothing. This is the second section with two woes in it. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Now, is he accusing God of something? No, they were. That has happened. That is just the truth. We need to sometimes look at ourselves and just tell the truth about what is happening. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. And you say, this man has a lot of nerve to talk to God like this. Well, sometimes you just have to look at your life and say, things are really hard right now. But notice that he does not say, but we didn't deserve that. He did not say that. He didn't say it, even though he didn't. He, he's also going to say, we have not done many things, but he never said, therefore, we do not deserve it. There is no therefore in this. The third section of this uh, verses 9 through 16 reads like this, that we are insulted by our enemies and we endure shame and, and disgrace. Verses 13 through 16, it reads like this. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of all those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Now, what we have here is a man that is actually, he's on the verge of confessing that he has feelings of being abandoned by God. But like a wise man, he is not so foolish as to blame God. He is not that foolish. There is a struggle in his heart. He may be thinking that he is being tempted to blame God. But we see here that there is more trust in God's faithfulness, even though the external circumstances tempt him to believe otherwise he is still trusting in his God. The third section has to do with the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, how he is perplexed and doesn't know why he is suffering. He's perplexed. He is expressing or confessing this to God. He searches his heart and mind for reasons why he is suffering, why he is having to endure this. And verses 17 through 22 we read these words. All this have, has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the places of jackals. Now in the King James it says dragons right here, but I would say it, you know, it may be a, a, a distinction that makes no difference and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten your name of our God or spread out our hands before a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. He is searching for answers of why he's suffering. This has been a good question for all of God's people since the time of, of uh, a Job. We always want to know why we are suffering. But we must understand that many times we must suffer for no other reason other than for the glory of God. And the world will look at us and say, that's not good enough for me. Do not be tempted, my brethren. I want you to consider the things that we can learn from this. In our suffering, if it be for the sake of Christ, it will be a glorious thing. If we suffer for no other reason than for the glory of Christ, then it is sufficient for us to say amen to it. I want you to consider that Christ deserved no suffering, and yet his life was filled with suffering for our sakes. For our sakes. May we have the same heart and spirit as our Lord had. Now the last section before we get into the practical applications is this. The psalmist, the writer of the psalm, now calls upon God to hear his prayer. And this is where I want your attention. This is where I want you to see all the, all the differences here. The man says, Awake! Oh, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Arouse yourself! Do not reject us forever! Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Notice he did not blame God. And he does not say, because of our obedience, please help us. No. He says, for the sake of your steadfast love. This is how he pleads properly. The practical applications I have is this. We, like this man, and like many others, are going to ask the Lord many times in our lives, why did this happen? Why is this happening? And we may say, oh, why, oh Lord, are you sleeping? And you know, these are rhetorical questions for many. The Lord never sleeps. The Lord has his reasons. Why have you forgotten your servants? I want you to consider three things. The first is this. The psalmist is concerned with God's will. He is. He repeatedly states it. He says, you have done this. You have done this and this and this. Look at our forefathers. You did all these things for them. And now you are doing this to me. You are doing this to my family. You are doing this to our country. You are doing this. Notice that he is saying, you have done it. This is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Yeah. It is an acknowledgement that God is in control, but it is not an acknowledgement that God is at fault. The psalmist is saying, he, he repeatedly affirms that God's will is good. He is doing it, and he puts himself under the authority of God's will. Just like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's what he says. The second thing to consider is this. The psalmist does not blame God like so many do. The writer does two very good things. He doesn't say, 
God can't do anything about it. Did you notice that? No. As a matter of fact, he says, you have done all these things. We know you can do it. We know you can do it. You have decided not to do it. We know that you have brought us out of Egypt. We know that you brought us through the wilderness. We know that you can go take us into the promised land and, and chase the enemy out with hornets. You can, you can push them out any way you wish, even though they're giants. You can do all these things. He has never had this thought come into his mind. God can't do anything about it. All this suffering? No, never once. Never once. Now I ask you the question, will that bring glory to God? Of course it does. Though we suffer, we say, God can do it. There is a reason why God does it. And I trust him for his reason. I trust him. The writer actually goes in the opposite direction. He clearly states that God can do something about it. And this is where we should be. If we see that there is all types of heartache, pain, and sorrow, we should never say, well, God can't do anything about it. We should avoid these type of answers that the world is going to give you. The world is going to say something to you like this. Well, God is not really responsible for your problems because he's just unable to prevent it. So there's no, you shouldn't blame God. He can't handle this. He just can't do it. You need to avoid that. You need to not listen to what the world will say about God because many people do that. They will write books about it. They'll get on TV about it. They'll get on little radio shows about it. They'll try to become a psychologist for you. And they'll say, don't worry about that. Don't blame God. He just can't do it. They'll, the world will also say something along these lines. We could say that God is not responsible for our problems because he is unaware of our problems. He is very, very busy. No, God knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. He can do something about it, and he knows everything about it. Do not give in to that. Do not listen to what the world says. We could say that God is not responsible for our problems because he cannot prevent the free will of man doing unexpected things. No, that's not right either. Amen. The will of the, 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 the heart of the king is in the hand of God. He turns it whithersoever he wants to. Every one of us, our hearts are in his hand. Yes. And God is in control. When we live through hard times, we need to say, our God is our sovereign God, and whatever he decides, I bless his name. There is a reason for it, and I am his servant. James Boyce says this in his commentary. Acknowledge that God is in control. This is the only way to find a possible solution. Do not go down that other way. Do not go down and say, well, he, he just can't. No, he can. He most certainly can. This is one way that we need to have our hearts more engaged in knowing who our God is. We have to say, I agree with God. Amen. Now, the second thing that this writer does not do is this. The writer doesn't assume that he must be living in sin because God would allow only, he would only allow us uh, to be uh, suffering if we were living in sin. How many times have you heard this? Oh, I wonder what he did to deserve that. Or I wonder what I did to deserve this. Sometimes we say it in jest. Sometimes we say it without thinking. But I want you to understand this. God does chastise his people. He does. However, 
When God chastises his people, he does so by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'll guarantee you the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll know why. You'll know why you're being chastised. Because it's for your benefit to change. But if you in the integrity of your heart can say, I don't know why this is happening to me. I, I've done all that I know. I've searched my heart. But I would say this. We cannot assume if we are under a very rough load and if we are being uh, under a suffering time that it, we cannot say, like the disciples, they would ask the Lord, well, who did sin that this man was born blind? Can you remember the answer? It was for the glory of God that this man was born blind, that Christ may come and give him sight. The world is going to disagree with that. But I'm telling you, this is an opportunity for us to live to his glory. This is an opportunity for us. There's only one chance that we have to live by faith in this world, and it is now in this present evil world. There's only an opportunity to suffer for the glory of Christ, and it is now. Now, do not reject your suffering and say, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Who is this man to say these things to me and have me serve him? Now, <clears throat> we looked at the idea that the psalmist is concerned with God's will. Remember how we started with that? We also said that the psalmist did not blame God. Now, the last thing we're going to look at is that we should consider our suffering as an opportunity to glorify Christ. In verse 22, you may have recognized the phrase, we are killed all the day long. That's from Romans chapter 8. Let me read this to you. Romans 8, 35 through 37, we find these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you see what the apostle is doing here? He is saying, is there a possibility for us to be removed from his love? For us to, to be taken away? It is actually taken from a psalm. It says, for it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It is for God's sake. It is for us to realize that we can never be separated from the love of Christ. Never. And the world will say, look at these people, they suffer. Look at them. And they still go to church. They still pray. They still love their God. How much glory can we give to God in that? How much greater glory can we be uh, given an opportunity to do than to fall down before the throne of Christ and to say, He has given us good. Shall He not give us bad? He is, he is the King of all things. Maybe this is going to be a great opportunity for Christ to be glorified. No. Verse number 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Isn't that the message in every single one of these letters to the people of, of the churches in, in, in the book of the Revelation, the Apocalypse? Oh, you need to be overcomers, you need to be conquerors. But Paul is saying here, you are more than conquerors now. You are more than conquerors because you have trusted your God in the very hard times. You have trusted your God when things were really bad. Ultimately, our suffering, all of it, is for God's sake. 
It is for his glory. God is glorified through our suffering. We must not forget that. Our salvation was accomplished by the suffering of our Savior. Now, you have to imagine that. Why did God design this? He designed his own son to be murdered by those that hated him. He was hated without a cause. There was no cause. They hated him because he was holy, because he was kind. He was good. And so will you be. You'll be hated. There'll be things coming at you. You have no idea where they came from. But do not be tempted to say, I don't deserve this. You deserve much worse. Mm -hmm. Suffering for the sake of Christ mm -hmm. is a privilege. A privilege that your suffering has something good in it. That it actually achieves something. Remember what we read in Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can. Nothing can. And people many times will say, well, how can I live to the glory of God? Endure to the end. You have to overcome all that is placed before you by the hand of God. Consider this last word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's something that is granted to you. Something that is given to you. It sounds like a, like a gift that just keeps on giving, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, it is a gift that only God can bring good out of this evil. Only God can use the things that come in our lives that people do everything in their possible power to avoid and yet God makes his people wonderfully like Christ. So let us all in our congregation receive what God has for us. Because he can make the most beautiful things out of the trials and furnaces that can refine us and make us more like Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy Father, we ask that you would be with us tonight. Give us grace to bless your name and all that we have done and all that we are asked to endure. You are our God. You are our King. You have fought our battles before us. You have done all these things for us. No matter how skilled we are, it is by your hand that we have gained victory and we bless your name. We bless your name, Father, and we pray that you would give us grace. We call, please awaken God and give us grace. Give us grace, Lord, and give us help. We ask this for the glory of our Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.